Hey, before we get on to this new episode, if you're looking to add more science-based tools to your teaching, I want to give you a two-week free trial of the VIP membership. Two weeks, 100% for free. You'll get access to a host of workshops, including ones on sciatica, total knee replacements, uh, tennis elbow, and so much more. Okay, In fact, you'll also get to join live workshops every single month, and I'll provide you research reviews, programming support, tons of Pilates classes, and a host of other resources to help you become the best instructor possible. Go ahead and start your two-week free trial with the link in the show notes, and if you decide it's not for you, no problem. You can cancel at no cost, and you'll just end up getting some free education along the way. But if you love it and you want to keep it, you can do so for as low as $1 per day. You have no risk, and by starting your free trial, you might just expose yourself to the best education of your career. With that said, let's get on to this new episode. Welcome to the Evidence-Based Pilates Podcast, and we have another incredible episode in store today because I have an awesome guest here, the one, the only, Kyle Marsh. Welcome to the podcast, Kyle. Hi, Adam. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's incredible to have you here. It's, um, it's awesome to stay connected on Instagram and, and nerd out, and now we get to nerd out on a podcast. Even better. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Um, with that, um, for for um, any listeners that um, are unaware of you and your work, um, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure. Um, so my name is Kyle, and um, I am a former dancer turned Pilates instructor, educator. Um, I'm also now a small business owner. Um, I like to think of myself as a jack of all trades. I do a lot of different things and wear a lot of different hats, but mostly I just think of myself as a movement optimist these days who really cares about people, their bodies, and making them feel good in their lives. Oh, can't argue with that. You have that elevator pitch down. That's good. <laughs> um, with that, uh, there are many reasons why I'd want to have you on the podcast. And, and for uh, this episode got sparked around um, the idea of like, when do we know that we no longer need more Pilates education, which is a really interesting conversation as a business owner of a Pilates continuing education company. And I work for Breathe Education, which is a Pilates education company. Um, so it's like, when are my services no longer needed? Um, so, but with that, what does that mean to you? Like, when do you know you no longer need Pilates education? I think that is a great question, and I think it's a difficult question um, because it depends on the approach that we want to take for this sort of perspective and conversation. Um, I'll, I'm going to rewind a little bit because I think that this conversation specifically or this question was arrived at for you and me because of an exchange that we were sharing over Instagram with another Instagram person who identifies as a strictly classical instructor. And there was a really cool conversation or what I thought was a cool conversation, a back and forth that we all had about why um, 
the sales pitch of if it's not classical, it's not Pilates and you shouldn't bother with it is kind of limited in my personal opinion. Um, And that it begs the question, how are we spending our money and what types of education should we be pursuing as Pilates professionals um, that make us better at our craft? And I think for me, I've gone into the boat of I care the most now about the outcomes that I'm able to deliver for my clients. And while I adore Pilates, I drank all the Kool-Aid. I did all the trainings. I was the person who did think if it wasn't Pilates, you were going to like hurt yourself and die. Um, I fully pivoted and I still love Pilates. I still teach Pilates. My profession is primarily Pilates, but I think that there is a certain point and there's a certain point at which Pilates in the sense of what Joe wrote isn't, it's not enough for us to continue pushing the field forward, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, beautifully said. And and sometimes as a Pilates instructor, when we hear that it's possible that Pilates has limitations or that it's not enough, that can be perceived as a threat to like an I'm not good enough, I'm not enough dialogue, which can go down its own like therapy um, rabbit hole. And when you say that Pilates is not enough for X reason, what do you mean by that? Or could you provide some examples? Sure. So I think, and I'm totally open to your sort of feedback and thinking about this, because I know you have several different hats and lenses that you can look at this as well. Um, But I think the way I talk about Pilates now, especially because I am privileged to be kind of in a personal trainer sort of environment, a Pilates environment, a I'm not a physical therapist, although I work with many of them. Um, So I'm able to have many different types of conversation about movement and what it is that we're trying to achieve when we're working with different bodies. And I always describe Pilates now as overall an incredible form of exercise that moves you through a lot of ranges of motion that maybe not every type of exercise will get you to move through, which overall leaves people feeling pretty good. But once we start to look at specific goals, so for example, I currently have um, a client who is recovering from a uh, knee surgery. Um, And so I'm in conversation with her physical therapist about she's been cleared to go back to exercising. And a lot of our um, a lot of our movement that we're doing together right now is not strict classical Pilates. Like we're really trying to do a lot of load load bearing stuff that is putting, you know, a little positive stress through her legs so that she can build her strength back up and, you know, get range of motion back into her knee joint the way that her physical therapist would like her to be working on. and if I was just following what I was taught in Pilates school, um, I wouldn't be able to, we would hit a plateau. There'd be a point at which she would plateau with that progress. Um, and so I think being able to take, being able to have more information at your disposal for how you approach a problem. So like Pilates is a field, or I like to talk about Pilates as a field because I want to take our profession seriously. Um, And I think that we as a field can use information from other fields that are adjacent to our field. So like exercise science, physical therapy, 
I'm sure you could add more. And we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We can just use the information that has already been established from a scientific standpoint in terms of what works and how you progressively load someone. That is not a negotiable thing. That's just a fact. You can bring that into your Pilates practice and actually create even better results or sort of client-centered care than you would be able to if I was forcing my client to only do footwork, lying down and never squat standing up. Yeah, or even hip hinge, like when you're squatting. Or that. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> something, something squat. No, it's just a squat. Um, but no, there's so much in that. Um, so one thing that really sticks out to me is that when you provide your client example of going through um, a rehabilitative experience with, I believe it was their knee, that rather than providing instructor-centered care and saying these are the things that we'll do, you do what's required to help your client achieve what they need to do, which is the essence of client-centered um, care. And that's really where it's, it's one of those things of like, if you just ask someone, like, do you like good information? Yes or no? Okay. Um, do you like good information about movement? Yes or no? Yes. Would you like to help your clients achieve their goals? Yes or no? Okay, well, here's some information, and it happens to not be in the Pilates repertoire. But then somehow that can get, there's like a discomfort, or I think in our exchanges off the air, there's like a shaming of if I don't study, and it doesn't even have to be in Pilates. It, I've even, I've had conversations with people, it's like, I can't study with this Pilates person because they're not a part of my company. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, I can't study with them. They were a balanced body and we're insert company. Um, and I think that's so weird. Um, like, I don't know how else to put it. I think it's so weird. It's like, you're like, so you would like to limit the amount of information that you're exposed to. And that's the best path forward. What has your experience been with seeking other information that's outside of the Pilates realm when you have an identity as a Pilates instructor, and then people are paying you for, insert, Pilates? Um, also a great question. So I think it's, for me personally, it's been an interesting and complicated journey because as I shared with you offline, there was a distinct period in time relatively recently, like within the last three to four years where I was like, I don't know if I'm allowed to call myself a Pilates instructor anymore. And I felt really conflicted about that. Um, and this is me coming from just if, if it matters to the people it matters to, like I've done two really robust, totally different forms of Pilates training prior to my life now. So my initial training was with Polestar and I literally flew to Miami and like apprenticed for three months under Brent Anderson and Shelly Power and just like worked in their physical therapy studio and taught classes. And it was this very, I, I was very indoctrinated into that community of people. And I learned a lot. I'm so grateful for what I learned, but it also left me with a very specific flavor at the time as a young impressionable instructor in my twenties of what I thought Pilates absolutely was and what I thought it absolutely was not. And then I continued along my Pilates journey 
And I fell into the classical world because I worked for Equinox and I eventually became um, an educator for them and a manager for their teacher training program. And I drank all the Contrology Kool-Aid and I had a full sort of 180 where I was like, never mind, all like sort of somatic based Pilates is terrible. We should only be doing classical. The classical work is what gets results. And so I went to two extremes and then I found myself somewhere in the middle and I lived happily in the middle for a while. Um, and then I got to the point in my career where I had clients that I'd been working with for, you know, five plus years. And inevitably, every, well, I think every person who gets to that point, if you're only doing the sort of in my skill set, what I've known and been practicing for the last 10 years with no other add-ins, your clients get to a place where they eventually plateau and they might still love the work. They might still love you, hopefully, um, and they probably will. But I started to realize like they weren't they weren't gaining strength or they were having these injuries or the, the feedback that I was getting from physical therapists that clients I was working with was different from what I had been taught. And so I started asking a lot of questions and I was going to my sources, like my Pilates people, and I would get these very unsatisfactory answers like, you know, oh, well, that person is still struggling with their low back pain because they have a bulging disc. So you need to do more TA activation stuff with them. Their core is not strong enough, you know, all the things we've all been taught. Um, and it, it wasn't until I gave myself permission to seek outside of the Pilates world. I personally had an experience where I, I retired from a dance career and I was like, I need to do something else with my body to keep myself sane and I'm getting older. I should probably learn how to use the gym. And I started working out with a personal trainer and all of a sudden, all the things my personal trainer was having me do were very different from what I had been taught was okay in Pilates land, which made me get curious because I wanted to understand if those two things could at some point live in harmony with one another, because a lot of the input that I had received from my Pilates education was that they couldn't. Um, and it turns out that that's not true. <laughs> um, and I, I think COVID also played a big role um, because during COVID, I discovered some uh, different Pilates podcasts. Like I started listening to Pilates Elephants. I found some people from Breathe Education. Um, and I was like, oh, wait, these are humans who are talking about things that I've been asking questions about forever. And anytime I go to a PMA conference, people just tell me to be quiet and sit down. Um, and I also had the privilege of having a few sort of peers in the industry who I know who I respected greatly as Pilates educators who left Pilates, like they don't consider themselves Pilates people anymore. They just like fully transitioned into health coaching or being personal trainers because they got so sick of having to fight the purity test and the dogma of Pilates land, which I think is a real thing. But also it's a shame because I still want to center the fact that even though I believe everything I'm saying is true, Pilates is still great. And I think the sort of subtext is like Pilates is still great, but also we could be better. Yeah. Like who doesn't want to continue to improve? And like at, so at what point, like should a, a listener who maybe like has just had Pilates experience and I've certainly been there, zero shame in that. And hopefully this, in this conversation can just spark curiosity. But at what point 
like would you would you advocate for like a Pilates professional to look at something that's not Pilates but movement related to help their teaching practice and also where should they start I think that that is a really depend the answer to the question really depends I'm going to say I think it depends on your interest also because I think that your passion is going to lead you and the types of clients that you attract and the types of clients that you want to work with are going to probably also sort of dictate what type of continuing education makes the most sense for you. And um, I know you've had this conversation before, Adam. I think you and uh, Raphael Bender had a great conversation once about uh, the Cadillac training about like how you didn't need to do the continuing ed for Cadillac or yeah, I forget we what. Yeah, how to do it. Yeah, exactly. And I, I know that it's controversial, but I'm in this camp. I used to be on the fence of like the, you need 600 hours and it's like a vocation and you need to go deep on Pilates land. I think at this point, as someone who has been an educator for Pilates teacher training, do one Pilates teacher training, do a comprehensive learn the exercises, get a piece of equipment under your belt. But then after that, like if it sparks your joy because you are just a contrology freak and you want to go deep on the toe correctors and the barrels and the foot corrector and all that stuff for your own brain space, that's perfectly fine. You can do that. But I encourage you to think about other types of movement that you enjoy. So like for me, I was a dancer. I was like, I've never learned how to use the gym. That's something that I know zero things about. Like the only thing I knew how to use at the gym was an elliptical. I'm not even kidding. And I was like, I should probably learn how to use the gym because I, that is something that is foreign to me. Um, and maybe you're somebody in Pilates land out there who knows how to use the gym and you've got Pilates under your belt and yoga really inspires you. Like go do a yoga training. Um, yeah. I think anything... I don't know how to articulate this. I'm kind of dancing around trying to find the right words, but anything that is going to give you more information about something that you don't know is going to make you better at teaching. And I think that often in Pilates land, there is the shame aspect. Like we get shamed into staying with our lineages or the original company that trained us because it feels good to be in community. And there is a psychological component in Pilates, in the Pilates world that kind of tries to man manipulate that, I think a little bit. But um, if you think about, I always like to reference education because I have a background in education, professional development for teachers. You're not, if you're a science teacher, you are not only doing professional development on how to teach science. You're doing professional development on how to write better lesson plans. You're doing professional development on how to use um, Google Slides better. You're doing professional development on how to write better recommendation letters for your kids when they apply for colleges. Like these are all skill sets that will make you a better educator, but they are not directly related to the topic or the subject that you're teaching. Oh, that's so good. I'm going to spontaneously pivot. Shit. <laughs> Great. That's okay. You're, you're, you can do you're it. in for it. So I, I always have like five dot points. I'm not using any of them right now. So with that, it sounds like what you're saying is to invest in skills, like in useful skills, and then you'll be more skilled. 
And I think that's kind of what we want with education is to build more skill with yeah. like, in a, like, like a zoomed out view. So then um, the, that begs the question, what are the skills that would make like an awesome Pilates instructor? Or if we don't, or that's a whole nother conversation of are we still a Pilates instructor, but just like an awesome movement instructor who incorporates Pilates, like what are the skills that they need? I mean, they probably need a base knowledge of some type of list of exercises could be Pilates or otherwise, like some, some repertoire is probably helpful. Um, I think public, public speaking or the ability to speak publicly is going to be something you want to practice. You yep. are going to want to practice the economy of words. So cueing, which is not like regular conversation as all of us who teach know, um, how to intrinsically motivate people. Like how do you get people inspired or interested in doing the thing that you're trying to get them to do um motor learning so you understand literally how people learn movement because as it turns out it's actually a skill set um and i don't know what else do you want to add adam i feel like you have yeah. good ones for this I put you on the spot that's why i like i like jokingly apologize before because i was like i know this is not cool um so it's yeah okay. so so we're teaching Pilates, right? And so it's like, we should know Pilates. I think you should, right? I'm an advocate for that. But I don't think you need to learn it five times. You can, right? You can and go ham at it. But you don't need to feel guilty if you don't want to sign up for another course on the, how to do the 100 or the roll-up, right? It's fine. Um, so there's repertoire, right? And then um, speaking. So you, have, you do have to talk at some point. So you should know how to do that um, in both in groups and private. Um, that's super helpful. So you mentioned queuing and like motor learning strategies and motor learning strategies is, is beyond queuing. That could just be um, letting your clients um, have autonomy and choices. Uh, like you mentioned, mo motivational factors and things of that nature. I would throw in um, uh, pain science understanding about pain because you'll always work with people that have pain they sometimes they tell you and sometimes they don't i think you should know something about getting humans stronger and it has nothing to do with pilates that's the big thing don't like like you can you can learn it from someone like myself or raf we have businesses that teach pilates instructors how to do that but we don't use any pilates literature to show you that we just it's just a uh, how the how human bodies work I would also, a lot of times, um, I, I do think you need to know a baseline of anatomy. Like, I think you should have heard of a hamstring. Like, I think it's weird. If you're like a hamstring, what's di what dish is that? No, it's a muscle, don't you? Should, I think you should know like a baseline. And I think you should know that it bends your knee and, and extends your hip. And then even further, how to load it. That's all you need to know. Like, that's cool. I don't think you need to palpate it. Now... <laughs> Like, but it's party tricks, right? I think that's, I guess, as a Pilates instructor, that's all you really got to do. Now, a lot of times when we seek out education, there's a financial motivator, right? It's if, like, I'm only making X amount, I would like to make more, which is like 95% of Pilates instructors, not mad at it. So then it's like, I need more skills to make more money. So I need to learn more anatomy. Anatomy doesn't, more anatomy doesn't make you more money, usually. 
unless you don't know what a hamstring is and now you do, I think it will make you more. Um, so there's like a threshold. I think like studying anatomy will teach you more anatomy and maybe build your confidence. But I think the best thing you can do to get, make more money is study business and to study marketing and, and study communication um, and study sales, the art of persuasion and, and these things that are independent of Pilates. It's like, and so now I'm just going like outside of moving because I think a lot of times we say we want more anatomy. We say we want more um, Pilates education. No, you want more money. You want more clients, right? Uh, like you think that's the key. It's kind of like, I want more core strength for low back pain. You don't want more core strength. You want less back pain. So that's just one thing. And I know it's a sidetrack, but I, but I feel like that's, I think you should get like your education is going to teach you exactly what it is, right? If you, if you sign up for a strength course, you're going to learn how to get people stronger. So if you want, if you want more clients, study how to get more clients. And those are going to be non-Pilates people. Usually, except for rap. Rap has a really good book. I don't get paid to say that. It's just a good book. It's five bucks. Um, so with that, like if it was a little bit of a tangent, right? So it's like we, we need to invest in skills. Now it's like what skills do a, does a Pilates instructor actually need? Now, what would be like the number one skill that you feel is not as prevalent in a Pilates education? that a Pilates instructor could seek elsewhere to get. For example, like the anything financial will be outside of that, but movement related. I think movement related, the number one thing is progressive loading. I don't think that we understand that in Pilates land. We don't talk about it. We actually sometimes stigmatize it to the point that we make people terrified of picking things up that are any heavier than a yellow spring, which I think does a huge disservice. I mean, that's a whole other rabbit hole we could go down one day, um, which does a huge disservice to people. It's actually counterproductive to the ways that we're trying to empower people to move and kind of live their lives. Um, and then I think something that's really missing and I know is really missing in my Pilates education is an understanding of just really basic pain science. Um, even just to the point where if you needed to summarize it, like not all like pain is complex, but also like you as the Pilates instructor are not responsible for curing all pain in the body. That's just like not possible. And if you have a different framework for approaching how you work with pain, um, that could potentially be a little more positive, a little more empowering. It actually goes a lot better for you as the instructor and also your client, more importantly. Yeah, we can tackle both of those, even though all both of those can be their own independent episode. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. My only ask of you as a listener is to leave a five-star review. Leaving a review helps this podcast grow and have a greater influence on the Pilates industry. I do this 100% for free. I do not and will never accept advertisements on this podcast. It is 100% for free. And you can go ahead and make a huge difference and allow this to grow by leaving a five-star review. But for someone who's like progressive loading, right? What, what is that? Like, what is progressive loading? I mean, I'm sure you can come up with a much more academic definition than the one I'm going to give, but how I like to explain it to my clients, because I think also another thing that is, um, 
Another great reason to seek out education outside of Pilates land is you learn how to say things differently. So um, in Pilates land, sometimes we go real deep on our topic and then we say things to our clients or our students and they're like, what? Um, So the way I explain progressive loading to my clients is basically we talk about whatever goal it is that they're working on. Like, okay, you want to be able to get on and off the toilet for the rest of your life. Full respect. Okay, you can do a body weight squat really easily at this point. Like you could do 20 of them and be like mildly tired, which means that you are not like you're in a good place. You have some a baseline of strength. But if you want to keep getting stronger, we need to positively stress those muscles with load so that you can build more muscle mass and be stronger than you currently are so that we feel really confident that you're going to get on and off that toilet for the rest of your life by yourself without a walker. Um, And I know that's layman's terms, but that's how I like to explain it. Hey, layman's terms are way more valuable than anatomical jargon. Anatomical jargon is like so cool for the ego. And if you ever find yourself in an anatomy lecture, you'll make friends. But outside of that, you'll just confuse people. Um, so, So with that, it sounds like you would just add load over time to the same exercise. Yeah. Like if the exercises eat, like the way I always talk about it is like this, I'll ask my client, I'll say on a scale of one to 10, 10 being really hard, one being I could do this forever. Where do you feel like you are with this exercise right now? How much effort do you feel like it is taking for you to do this? And I'll pick a number. And if they say three or four, I'm like, okay, that means it's too easy. We need to make this more challenging so that you can still continue to get the benefit of getting stronger. If their goal indeed is to get stronger, which most of them say that it is. So we do the thing that's going to make them get stronger, which would be add more load. And then we add more load. And then at some point as a person who's observing them, you're like, okay, this is starting to look easy for you. Again, like, where are you on the scale of one to 10? One being like, I could do this forever. 10, this feels really challenging. I could only do one or two. And then they respond. And then usually it's like, okay, great. It's time to increase the weight. Let's add five more pounds and see how you feel or whatever the range is that you're choosing to do. And then you add it and then they're like, oh yeah, okay, this is a lot more effort. And you see that they're straining a little bit more, hopefully in a positive or in a positive range. And then you kind of go from there. Boom. Now, just to play devil's advocate, right? And so we're talking about getting education outside of a Pilates education by doing that, right? Or by learning that and then applying that back to Pilates. And so for the Pilates instructor, that's like, well, no, like I like it's in the system. You just have to look in the Pilates system and progressive loading is in there and my clients get stronger. So first we start with elephant and then we go to arabesque, right? Or, and then we go and we do pikes um, on the chair. Like we're, I'm constantly progressing my clients and they're getting stronger. What do you mean that I have to look outside of Pilates to do progressive loading? Okay. So I will say first that I was that person. So I really do for you out there. I have nothing but love in my heart for you. Really, really, really came from dance land, believed it for many years and I get it. And I want to actually say to go back to that. I meant to say this earlier. I, for people out there who feel their feathers bristle because they feel the importance of the classical work I do want to say that from a historical standpoint, I can totally get behind why understanding what contrology is, how Joe wrote it, and all that stuff is important and valuable. And if you want that to be your specialty, I'm not pushing against that. But if... 
in reference to your question, we want to have the conversation um, about what actually produces movement outcomes. And this is where I wish that our field could be a little more, a little clearer, a little braver, a little less um, culty about how we like to talk about everything. You don't have to destroy, it doesn't have to destroy Pilates to say that Pilates can't achieve everything. And for the elephant to arabesque, like there isn't, there are a set number of springs, depending on the reformer that you are working on, there are a set number of springs. You will never have more than four or five or whatever your, like if it's balanced body, like your green spring, your red springs, your blue springs. And there is a point at which progressive loading on a reformer is impractical, right? Like we can't, you can't do pulling straps on all four springs because you'll slide off the box. It's not a piece of equipment that has been designed in that specific way for you to do that. And it's not, in my opinion, I'm not trying to tear down Pilates when I, when I point out the limitations that it has, because I love Pilates and I really believe in it. I think it's a great movement system. I really enjoy it. I do do Pilates. Like that's how I got here. But there's just, there's fact and there's fiction. And the idea that when you lift your leg in arabesque from elephant, that it's making you stronger, you're making it more complicated. You're adding more coordination. You're asking for a larger range of motion. But if you really understand strength principles, like is that actually achieving a strength increase outcome? And unfortunately, the answer is no, it's not. Not because I'm being mean. It's just a fact. That's <laughs> movement works, which doesn't mean you can't teach that. Like if your client loves that and they get a great sense of accomplishment because they have found this advanced move in the work, that is valuable for a different reason. Like maybe it motivates your client to stay. Maybe it makes them feel really accomplished about their practice. And that I think is great. And you should keep that in your work. But if you are trying to actually say, if you're trying to actually sell them an improvement in strength, that's not the thing that's doing it. So you need to be clearer about that because whether you mean to or not, if you tell your client that that specific move is making them stronger, it's actually a lie. Doesn't mean you can't have it, keep it. It's great. It can serve all these other purposes. But if your actual outcome or goal is strength, that's not the thing that's going to do it. There's better other ways to do it. Does that answer your question? Oh, yeah. Very, no, very well thought. I was just like, keep going. I'm like fangirling over here. This is fun. Um, so, so with that, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, just do both. Like you should know both, right? We should not, we should know how to get a specific response within a human. And so, um, dear listener, when we say the word strength, and I think this is, this was a pivotal moment for me when I started studying outside of Pilates was I redefined what strong is or what strength is. The academic, and this is not controversial in an academic um, setting or in personal training or in physical therapy or in exercise science, it's not controversial. The definition of strength is the maximum force that you can apply onto an object one time. It's measured by one repetition maximum. A lot of times what we do is we bias endurance which is endurance is the ability to hold a sub-maximal force for an extended period of time, meaning doing something a lot or long, you know, making it harder, 
uh, making it harder, but not applying a lot of load. And then you just do it for longer. Like, how do you make a long stretch harder? Well, make them hold it, do a half spring and do more of them. Right? Like that's all sub maximal load. And so this is one of those things of like, if we, if we are going to advertise Pilates makes you stronger, we should know what the definition of strength is. That's our duty of care. Our clients are assuming that we know it. We should know it and the truth about it. And then we should also know how to bias it, right? And it's not that you have to, it's just you should know how to do so if you choose to. And then if you're doing an exercise, like going from elephant to arabesque, you should understand what you're biasing. You're making control harder, right? You are making it harder to balance. You're make, you, there, there's a flexibility component to it. You are, you know, you, there's so many things that we are doing, but if you progressively load arabesque, yeah, you're just going to fatigue your shoulders, right? Like you're not going to fatigue the hamstrings. So then if you were like, oh, I'm getting the, like, if I, if you really want to get the hamstring stronger, when you understand progressive loading, all you do is you just do a different decision, right? And, and, and you can do them both. Like for me, it's just like both, 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 like they're all awesome. You should just know what stuff means. And so um, and I, I've totally been there where I'm like, we're going to get so strong from these toe taps. It's, it's ridiculous. These like, calf raises. Yeah. Crunches are going to kill you. Have you seen the spine model? It has the disc. It's red. Um, <laughs> they, they crunch it. <laughs> right. Yeah. I've totally been there. Like I, I get it. I get it. I get it. But with that, there, we start to like blur this line of like, okay, now we're, we're, we're trying to like, we're adding progressive loading and we're doing these things that are, not necessarily Pilates or contrology based strategies because contrology, it does add some load, but it usually adds complexity and all these other things that are super healthy. So then it's like, how can, like, can we, are we still Pilates instructors? Like if I have a kettlebell and I'm having you hip hinge 10 times between footwork and the hundred, am I still teaching Pilates? <laughs> You know, as someone who had that crisis, that identity crisis, yeah, um, who's messily living in that space, I think you, maybe in that moment, you're not, I don't know, but it's okay is what I want to say. Like you can be both and maybe it's even better that you're both because one of the things going back to the shame piece that we were talking about before and the purity tests that can come with living in Pilates land. Um, it's all of this sense of like needing to ask for permission. I, I think that that's something that really comes up a lot for me, especially when I started exploring outside of Pilates land. And I was like, what could I learn about the body that I don't already know is I felt like I was cheating on Pilates or, or sort of like I was doing something bad that I wasn't supposed to be doing because there was such a tight, scope on what was and wasn't allowed in our practice. And I, maybe you're not doing Pilates if you add the kettlebell, but also maybe you are like, I don't, I don't know the correct answer. Like the reformer is an incredible piece, <laughs> excuse me, of gym equipment. Like really close Joseph Pilates ran what he called a gym. So what if we reframe the 
context, like, you know, we've gone from Joseph Pilates running what I understand based on what I've read to be this kind of grungy gym that had like dirty showers where he would make everybody dry brush themselves and all this weird stuff. And everyone was sweaty and they had to wear tiny clothes when they were in there. Like we went from that to this sort of beautiful, aesthetic driven, like very boutique sort of experience of Pilates studios, um, unless you go to like SLT or Club Pilates, which are all totally great and fine if you do those things. Um, You know, maybe we have to switch or pivot our mindset back to the idea that what we're doing is a workout. And if it's a workout, anything that can help you achieve the goal or outcome of the client can be valid in that space. And I will stand by the fact that I do think the reformer is genuinely one of the most incredible pieces of gym equipment that I've ever encountered. Like the versatility of the reformer is amazing. The versatility of the Cadillac, uh, arguably also amazing. Like how many pieces of equipment in your gym can you go upside down on and do pull-ups on and all these different ranges of motion? Like maybe if we can celebrate the things, this is just occurring to me as I'm saying it. Maybe if we can celebrate the things about Pilates that make Pilates unique and great, but then also add the other elements that we feel like it's missing. Like maybe that's even better. Yeah. It's one of those things like um, other ideas are not a threat to our identity. And so there's unless that, Sorry. Uh, unless you run a business that your only sales pitch is that it does. And I think that that's why, we get pigeonholed often in Pilates land if you exist in the Pilates circle of feeling like you're not allowed to seek out other education or you shouldn't because it won't be useful to you and that you need to do the like 399 ways to use a ladder barrel workshop. Yeah, I, I, um, I, I my recommendation is um, that's a good indicator that it's time to move on and there's other places that can facilitate your growth. But that's just my, that's my 100% bias. Cause I think you'll, I don't think you need to do, I think you just need to know like four different 10 minute sets on a high ladder barrel. And I think you're fine. Agreed. Uh, I, I know I'm high ladder barrel people. I, it's totally cool. I have one. It's in my other garage because it's too big. I do like to lay on it sometimes. Um, <laughs> but I, I speak, I speak as I, I 100% agree that the reformer is incredible. I've, I've, I've gone through certificates that incorporate what we would call comprehensive here in the states and comprehensive in the states not worldwide but in the states refers to like all the barrels and cadillacs and chairs they're awesome but then i think the wonder chair is a really good example the wonder chair may like like you know the step ups like where you where you you know they're called up downs they're called all kinds of things one foot on the pedal one foot on the top of the chair you step up and then you come down it's awesome that that allows a step up to be accessible to people that it wouldn't normally because the pedal makes it easier. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really helpful to recognize is like, if you're going to progressively load, you make the pedal lighter and lighter and lighter. You eventually do it without a pedal and then don't tell anyone Kyle, but what you cannot do after that is you can actually hold something that's trying to pull you down to the ground, like a kettlebell, right. Or anything. In any studio owner out here that's listening, I would, this is just my daily pitch of um, if you purchase um, kettlebells, it'll be the best return on your investment of any apparatus in your studio. Um, they're like two bucks a pound in your clients. You add so much to your class and they take up like no retail space. So I don't, I'm not, I don't own stock in kettlebells. 
So, um, but with that, it, there is that crisis, like you mentioned, of am I still a Pilates instructor if I do these other things? Am I the one message I want to send to a listener is like, I would encourage you not to care. Um, because I would just encourage you to prioritize other things. And I think when you're at like the most like bliss teaching is that you don't care about the label that's put on you. You care about the impact that you're having with people. And if you need, if you have like how you mentioned your client who's like determined to get on and off the toilet for life, which becomes more and more important as time goes on. Um, and you do something non Pilates to get them there. Like you've made such an impact. Like, I feel like that would be against our duty of care to only provide Pilates to that person when you know that their task is different. Like, I don't think that's right. I agree. That's why I changed how I teach. And I will say that because I have in my heart still the version of me and other people out there who might be listening that just loves Pilates and you want it so badly to be the answer to everything. And I, I, I emotionally, I empathize with you and I feel that feeling. Um, but to Adam's point, I, it's also so liberating when you realize that the label of Pilates instructor, which for me for a really long time, because of how much I invested in well, financially, emotionally, psychologically, like it was really important to me to be recognized by other peers as a Pilates instructor. Like that title and that identity meant a lot to me. But as I've gained more confidence and just become a more independent thinker because I started my own business, I needed less and less permission from other people around me to do things, which led me to a place of being like, you know what? turns out that footwork is not the same as a deep weighted squat with a kettlebell. It's just not. Your muscles work in a totally different way and both are good and both can be useful and how wonderful to be able to offer both options to your client. Like another frame for it. And I, I know this can be a sort of tricky example because Obviously, if you unless you are trained as a physical therapist, we are not physical therapists. That's not our scope of practice. But like Adam, if you were treating a patient, what drives your care for them? The thing that gets them the result or the fact that you were taught manual manipulation at school and so you like have to do it because otherwise you're not a PT unless you do it. At at school, we joke. We would joke like, "Well, we have to do it for eight minutes because you have to you have to do eight minutes to bill." Um, it's just kidding. Yeah. Uh, no, no, what it is, it's like, well, what's a meaningful result for the, for the patient or in our case, as Pilates instructors, the client, right? Like what's a meaningful result for them? Um, like if I were working in a worker's comp case, it would be, okay, well, what's your job duties, right? What can you not do right now? And then what can we, what can we do to get that body part? Like sometimes you have to reduce pain. How can we get it like the joint range of motion and the strength back? And then you don't discharge them. You then like for us in, in physical therapy, we discharge, we get rid of our patients, right? They don't stick around for eight years. Um, and so, and so with that, um, it, we, I would then have to need to see them do a task that's as similar to what they have to do at work as I can possibly make in the clinic. Uh, Cause you know, we can't, we can't have someone stand for six hours, but we can do other things um, and stuff like that. So it turned like, that's the beautiful thing about um, my 
or what I've experienced personally of just going outside of Pilates and studying things that are completely independent of it is that you lose attachment to modality. Like in, in other, in exercise science and physical therapy, no one says, is that physical therapy? Is that tech? It's just, it's not going to help the person. Like, it's just like, you know, if you drop an apple, it goes to the floor. Like we know it's going to happen. It's like, it's just known, like help the patient. And so that's, what's changed my Pilates perspective so much is like help my client. What do they want to do? And sometimes they just want to move. And so it's like, let's do the repertoire, man. Like, let's do it. But that's not always the case. And, and it's just one of those things of like, this isn't like um, learning more isn't taking away from the Pilates you love. It is adding to your knowledge base and your ability to help people within your scope of practice. And I think that's a really big thing, but um, go for it, Kyan. Yeah, I, I really, I agree with that. And I also feel the same way. And what I wanted to add is that by no means is this a battle cry to like forget everything you learned in Pilates land either. I Keep those things, take them with you. And um, Adam, I know you did recently an episode on whether or not Pilates is your actual product. And you made a great point in that episode where you said, sometimes your clients come to you and they say the thing that they want is Pilates. But when you dig deeper, you realize that it's actually like they want less pain or they want to be able to get on and off the toilet unassisted for their whole lives. And that is a completely, well, it can be a completely different goal. So you really have to listen to your clients, but also, you know, I currently have a client who is in her late 70s. She has done Pilates with ev- like all the name, name all the elders. She did it with all of them. She knows Pilates, but it's like, actually, I feel quite honored that I get to teach her and that she wants to work with me. And when I work with her, what she wants is actually Pilates. She wants the classical rep. She wants to go deeper on the choreography and all of the variations because that's what she enjoys. And I know that that is her what she wants. And that's her goal. And that's fine. That's so awesome. And it's so fun. But if she decides at some point in the future that she wants to do something else and I check in with her and, you know, sometimes we chat about it and she's still very like, this is what she believes. This is how she feels. And I respect that. I'm here to offer options, but ultimately like I'm also just providing the movement experience that gives her joy. Like you can still do that. If that is what's important to you about being a Pilates instructor, those clients do exist and it's okay to just do that. But I think maybe the takeaway or a point that I would like to try and make, especially in reference to when you decide whether or not you need more continuing education is that you need to also be able to differentiate between who, like what is me just teaching Pilates to this client who genuinely loves Pilates And then when I end up with somebody who's in the Pilates studio, which I would argue is actually the majority of the clients you end up with, who is trying to achieve a physical goal, like less pain, less uh, recover from an injury, come back from postpartum or, you know, pregnancy, those things do actually often require more skill sets. And so depending on the goal of your client, like maybe we can tie this back to the earlier part of the conversation, like let that drive where you seek out more education. Because again, it's totally fine to just teach Pilates and the classical rep, have great love for it. But often 
when you look at the types of situations that you're going to encounter with clients and students, it's not enough for the thing they actually want. If you want to be better at giving them the thing they actually want, which they can't articulate to you because they don't know how to speak all the fancy like jargon, they might call their quadricep their hamstring. Like that's where you come in and that's why your expertise needs to be having more tools in your toolbox to help them get the thing they actually want. And maybe if we reframe Pilates and how we center ourselves as teachers, instructors, from that point of view, it becomes, it can be less threatening to identify that Pilates can't do everything. It can do many wonderful things, but then also, I don't think any studio owner, educator, instructor ever goes into work wanting to just be mediocre at our jobs. I I really, truly believe we exist in an industry where all of us want to be excellent. So why not let yourself be excellent by adding more tools to your toolbox? Bam, Mike Ross. Yeah, no, no, spot on. In, In like your example of a client, who has a history with the original repertoire and wants that I can, I have, I've had a client like that too. I think that was really cool to work with because that made me stay sharp. Like just selfishly, it made me stay sharp twice a week on the original repertoire. They, she wanted everything except she didn't want to get her own box. Like she knew she was paying for a service. So she's like, get my box, get my box, right? I'm getting water. Uh, so, so yeah. And, and that's, that's what, that's exactly, that's client centered care. That client wants this, give them that. Right. And, and they, they know what they want in that, in, in that case. And then also to just want to add on, um, Sometimes even the education outside of Pilates may not even really influence the exercise choice, depending on what you choose to learn, right? Maybe you want to learn like motivational um, interviewing, or you want to you know, learn more about motor learning and pain science. Sometimes it's really helpful to just learn from outside of the Pilates realm, and it changes your language, and it changes how you communicate with your client. And, and therefore, you change the experience of Pilates. Because like in that episode, like I was mentioning, you know, the Pilates exercises aren't your product. Like they're a piece of it. But the, your product is the experience of, you know, of doing Pilates. And so I would just encourage um, any listener, you can reach out anytime if you're looking for um, um, examples of continuing education. Um, but just just keep learning in that accumulating knowledge is not a threat to your current state of being, yourself and your professional um, identity. It's it's what it's what growth feels like. But with that, I I am um, aware of time, Kyle. And if there is one thing that a listener took away from this episode. What would you like it to be? Um, I think it is that if you have lived in Pilates land for a long time and you know that you love Pilates land, but you're feeling kind of stuck on something and we all, if you're in the industry for long enough, we all encounter this, I believe at some point. Um, And you're only seeking the answers to whatever the thing is you feel stuck on within the industry, like you're going to your mentors, your teachers, your peers, I would encourage you to give yourself permission to look at the problem that you're trying to solve um, from a different industry's point of view on the same problem. Because I think 
doing that will actually probably lead you to a clearer answer because we live luckily in a global economy in the world of the internet everything is available to you nothing has to be off the table like actually you can have all of the answers if you want them and often when we exist in our sort of little bubble of our community and for us for the purposes of this conversation it's what I like to sort of jokingly refer to as Pilates land, but the industry of Pilates, um, we can become very small-minded in what we think is possible. And that's why it's really cool to meet people who do something completely different than you, think about what you do in a completely different way, because it will always, more information is just more information. I've never met anybody who felt like learning more about a thing was a bad thing. Um, and you have permission to do that. You don't need permission, but if you do need it, you have it and you should do it and go pursue the curiosity that you have, whether it's motor learning or manual therapy or like progressive loading or name, name anything. It could even be nutrition, like whatever the thing is that you find interesting that you feel like continues to come up for you in your teaching practice as a question or something that you feel curious about go check it out because it's probably going to make your life and your teaching life so much richer than it currently is. There you go. You have permission uh, to learn and grow, even though you, you don't need anyone's permission to learn and grow. And um, with that, Kyle, for anyone who would like to um, get in touch with you, um, how could they do so? Um, I have a website if you would like to be formal. So kylegeorginamarsh.com or I'm on Instagram at kylegeorginapilates. Um, I love to chat, as Adam knows, about all things Pilates, movement optimism, all, all the stuff, just helping people feel good and alive in the world because we have these bodies, these vehicles that we get to move around in, and it's awesome to let people feel liberated in them. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, for uh, for anyone uh, who didn't catch that information, don't worry. All of Kyle's information is in the show notes. You just uh, click on it and it'll take you right to her socials as well as her website. With that said, um, thank you, Kyle, for being on the podcast. And thank you, dear listener, uh, for, for showing up again. Have an incredible rest of your day. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Adam.